Tonight on A Conversation with Brian, I have friends from Australia, two great educators, Gavin Grift and Colin Sloper. Gavin is a best-selling co-author of numerous books under his belt and is founder and CEO of Grift Education. His passion, commitment, humor, and highly engaging style have made him one of Australia's most in-demand presenters. His leadership in education in the industry in Australia fueled the development of PLC networks across the country and culminated in the establishment of the Center for Professional Learning Communities, a cohort informed by the work and legacies of Rick and Becky DeFore. Colin Sloper has been a teacher and assistant principal of principal in government schools for well over 35 years in Australia. In the course of his career, he has been involved in the establishment of five new state government schools, including during his time as principal of Parkingham Springs Primary School in Victoria. Because of Colin's leadership and collaborative work with the school community, Parkingham Springs became the first recognized model professional learning community school in Australia. Colin himself is a best-selling author and is highly sought after across Australia. And so without further ado, I'd like to welcome to a conversation with Brian, Gavin Grift and Colin Sloper. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, Brian? Colin and Gavin, how are you? Right. I am so glad. Oh, good afternoon. Good morning. Good evening. What time it, is it? What there? time Sorry. is it over there? It is. I, I didn't check before. What time is it? It is eight o'clock the day before, eight p.m. the day before for you all. Okay. So yeah. we're just after nine a.m. Yes. Yeah. And so, thank you again for for joining me on my show. And at the beginning of each one of my shows, I ask my guests um, to talk a little bit about their personal journey, their professional story, as much as they'd like. And so who is Colin Sloper? Who is Gavin Grift? You can well, start. you know, let's, let's, let's go in the order of experience, Colin, which would mean you. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Um, Brian, what brought me to uh, the, the PLC journey in particular was, as you mentioned in your intro, I was the um, principal of a number of new schools that we opened up um, for the Victorian State Government here in uh, Melbourne, Australia. Um, and one of those schools was um, Somerville Rise Primary School, and I was there as principal from for about uh, 13 years. I knew at my time during that uh, time, my teachers were working really hard, um, that they were doing their best. Um, it was a, a, a suburb on the outer southeast of Melbourne on the Mornington Peninsula, uh, very diverse um, clientele in terms of parents and students. But even though the... Uh, teachers were working hard, the educators were working hard, the leaders of the school were working hard. I just felt in my stomach that we weren't doing or weren't getting the results we should have been getting for right. all the hard work and time that the teachers were putting in, the educators were putting in. They were working absolutely their, you know, their, their backsides off to try right. and get the best results, but something wasn't happening. So when I had the um, good fortune to actually open another government school, I kind of put that on the back of my mind that we needed to continue to harness the enthusiasm of teachers um, to, but to also look at what we were doing in terms of raising the standards of the students and learning outcomes for our students. Sure. And I suppose that's where I connected or reconnected with Gavin in his work 
around PLCs, and he introduced me to the work of um, Rick and Beck DeFore in terms of uh, PLCs at work. And that started the ball rolling in terms of what we tried to do with Packenham Springs. So when I set up Packenham Springs, we made sure we followed those tenants of the PLC at work, working from the top, transforming that whole culture of the school. So that there was this unrelenting focus on, you know, trying to achieve high levels of learning for all students. Sure. So that's briefly where I came from in terms of this journey in PLCs. Well, let's go back a little bit, Colin. Let's talk about why you actually got into the profession, because I want to really... Yeah help my guests, help my audience understand your journey a little bit more beyond that, you know, the PLC process. I mean, that's a, a big part of your career, but it didn't, it didn't start there. No, certainly not. I think my desire to go into education was in terms of I had, uh, through my education, um, really powerful teachers who made a really strong impact on me and other teachers who I, for whatever reason, didn't connect with and for some reason, I don't feel they got the best or I could show them the best of me. So my desire in going into education was really to try and make sure that I could do the best for my students. Um, and in those days, it was very much working in isolation. When I went into um, education, it was very much I was in my little classroom, you know, peddling, doing all I could. But it was basically to make the change, to try and emulate the best teachers I had and sure. to try and not emulate, if you like, or not carry on what I was seeing from some of those teachers who couldn't engage me in the learning process. I left Brian, when I left um, primary school, I couldn't read. I was, um, my, my, my parents were teachers um, at that stage, but I really struggled with some of the basics in education. And it wasn't until I got into um, early uh, secondary college that I connected with a couple of teachers who believed that I could do better than I was doing and really instilled in me that you know, if a teacher has that belief in you, sure. then you are willing to do a little bit better, try a little bit harder. You're willing to try and, you know, reach that potential that they see within you. So not being able to read in, you know, primary school, leaving primary school, I mean, it had to affect you in a way that when you became older, you, you did not want that feeling for any child, right? Oh, most definitely. I can remember in primary school, we used to have a thing where sitting in rows, the uh, the teachers would get you to stand up one at a time and read from a text that everyone was reading from. I can remember every time it came to my turn, I suddenly would need to go to the toilet, would have a coughing fit. Yeah. I would do anything I possibly could not to go through that embarrassment. Like I could read basic words, but sure. in terms of trying to put it together into a coherent piece, that was impossible. So most definitely that stuck in my mind and, and gave me the impetus of going, you know, what are we doing? What are we doing here? These teachers were trying their best for me. They wanted me to learn to read, but the methods they were using were embarrassing me and actually turning me off the very art of reading um, yeah. that they were trying to encourage me to do. Yeah. And Colin, I tell my story a little bit, but it's kind of similar. And I, I had a difficult time learning how to read um, when I was younger. And my dad was a, actually a reading teacher. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it was, you know, the, the teachers in my school early on, they wanted to retain me. They wanted to hold me back. But my parents mm -hmm. said, no, we got this. So I was lucky. I had an interventionist at home. My dad was a reading teacher. But again, my, my passion is fueled because every kid doesn't have a reading teacher at home. And that's, right. that's not fair, right? And so that's that's kind of a, a similar experience to to you as well. Gavin, um, you're on mute, but t tell me um, a little bit about your personal story, your professional journey, as much as you'd like. But I'd really, again, I you know we'll we'll get to the PLC piece at the end. But you know, why did you become an educator? 
That's such a big question. I think it's multifaceted. And I think just before I go into that, I think Colin, well, he doesn't sell himself short, but probably another thing you need to know is he was my first principal and he was the youngest principal, I think, appointed by the Victorian Education Department at that point in time wow. uh, when I first started teaching at the age of 20. So that's how far we actually uh, actually go back. Um, and I think he must have been in his early 30s, Colin, is that correct? When you were yeah, principal at that point in time. Wow. Yeah. So... So anyway, just a bit of a backstory. I, I think, I mean, there's a synergy, guys, between all of us here, just in some ways around education. I think for me, if I was to sum it up, I felt like in primary school and high school in many different ways, I don't think I felt seen or heard. And there was really probably two teachers. And I tell this story in some of my keynotes and work that I do around the place, um, such as the power of what we can and who we can be for for students, for these little souls that turn up each day, you know, wanting wanting to discover elements of themselves that maybe they didn't know or just to be fueled by sure. a motivation a, a for life, right? And I never had it. And it was two teachers who instilled in me, who saw me, basically. I mean, I'm cutting a long story short, but they, they saw beyond... I started school really, really young. Uh, Mum and Dad sent me to school at an extremely young age. I mean, I was... I became a teacher at the age of 20 and was at university at 17, which is fairly young yeah. in Australia. And, um, you know, I learned about the hidden curriculum at school, you know, the, the things we're not supposed to learn or, 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 or know, or maybe the narrative that I started to develop around myself was that I couldn't do school, you know, yeah. not a place for me. So yeah. these two teachers, Mr. Wallace and Mrs. Weston, and I'll say their names out loud as every opportunity I can possibly get. Um, just, just, challenged that narrative that you know young Gavin kind of developed I guess and was developing uh and and saw me and it was Mr Wallace my grade six teacher who gave me a purpose because I wanted to do what he did I, yeah. I he just completely turned my world around and I wanted to be able to 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 do exactly what he did and so my dream to become a grade six teacher it was quite a specific dream uh started in that grade six year uh and I guess helped me through some times that weren't so good because at least I knew what I wanted to do. So I had some kind of goal when things weren't exactly, you know, going so well. And sure. that's why I went into education. And as soon as I went to university, I, I didn't set the academic world on fire. But as soon as I got in that classroom and did teaching rounds, we call them here in Australia. I'm not sure if that's the same in the US, but basically when you do your field, you know, practice in schools, I knew as soon as I stepped in the classroom, this is, this is, this is what I need to be doing. This is what I should be doing. It was really, it felt more like a calling than a job, uh, if you like. And I can't, it's hard to describe that, isn't it? In a, in a sense, but is. that was, that was for me, you know, the start of it. And I ended up at Collins school when I was 20, teaching my first year four or five class. And I remember looking at those kids in that first year and thinking, I actually don't know now what to do. <laughs> but anyway, I went and did it. And I remember getting to the end of that first year and I remember they had learned something and I thought, well, I don't know how they did that, but at least I know they, they do learn in spite of me. But, you know, that was the, that was the start and it's just been a, an ongoing organic journey for me as an educator since. I've certainly not been a five-year five year plan, you know, goal yeah. sort of guy. I've just sort of rolled with it and my passion has taken me to where it's taken me, I guess. I think for both, for all, all of us, you know, for, for the three of us, I think when you, you embark on this journey and you're not really sure, I mean, you, you know what you want to do is you want to help kids, 
but um, along the way, sometimes I, I I can admit it, and you just kind of said it, um, Gavin, as well. Um, at times, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I was just doing the best I could. But then there was always somebody along the way that would say, I can help you, or they would model yeah. something, and they would it, it, it would be like, boy, at this time where I wanted to quit, or this time where I felt defeated, somebody just showed up. And it's like, wow, this person is going to help me. So I think, I don't know if that was the case with you, Colin, or you, Gavin, but I've had so many people along the way have helped me in this journey as a professional that it just made, it kind of fueled me to just want to get better. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, like Gavin mentioned a couple of teachers there of his, I can particularly recall a teacher I had in year eight English. As I said, I, I really struggled with literacy skills in primary school, being able to read putting words into a, um, a a story or writing a story was absolutely impossible. And I can remember I got this young teacher in um, English in year eight, Mr. Harmon, um, and I wrote a story, had to, class of project, had to write the story, uh, wrote it. And I can remember he wrote something on it like, this has got really great potential. Well, I can remember going home and rewriting that story at least eight times, locking myself in my bedroom, redrafting it, redrafting it, redrafting. My parents came in saying, "What you know, you're doing? You've never locked yourself in your bedroom to do schoolwork. What, what's right. going on?" Just because <laughs> of those couple of words that he had written yeah. on this story, in terms of showing, "Hey, this has got potential," where no one had ever seen that before. Or any time I got a story back, I would always have all the red marks, the spelling mistakes, yeah. the words that had been left out, you know, all this negative stuff. So I'd kind of get it and dread and put it away. Where where this came back with only it was only a couple of positive words, but for some reason it kind of put this spark into me that you know there was something there that I could work on and, and get this to be better. Sure. Sure. It's amazing what one one thing one person can do to change the trajectory of a person's life. And I, I think, Brian, the other thing around that, and Colin, you got me thinking about that, is we're not just talking about teachers to students, right? We're talking about colleagues to colleagues. Oh, and I was just yeah. thinking, you know, Colin sitting here, he was the first leader who saw me. Um, and there were many others that I was fortunate enough to have as models through my teaching career where... Uh, they they helped me, as you just talked about before, you know, Brian, not just as a student, but as a teacher, grow into the profession. And I think it's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate now, particularly around that middle leadership space, um, yeah. because that's not that's not everybody's experience, unfortunately. And yeah. I think, you know, it's important that it is. So that same feeling, I think it's an emotion almost that we're talking about. You know, it's fueled by this um, this desire to be to be somebody for someone else that makes their life better you know we're talking in the context of education right. is as true for me today in those of my colleagues that I work with as it was for me as a boy going through mm. primary and high school uh, and uh, from my teachers as the, as was the same for both of you so it's interesting isn't it that there's this common kind of almost you know calling that comes out of what we experience sure. and continues to this day in different ways and i think that's i think there's there's um a strength in being able to see other people's gifts right mm -hmm. and so for me that's what happened as i was you know working through this journey as an adult i think you know my colleagues or other administrators saw something in me that i didn't see in myself brian you can be an administrator yeah. I can't be an administrator. That's too, that's too big a job. Yes, you can. Yeah. And, and so 
if somebody sees that in you, like you were saying, Gavin, as an adult, then you start to believe it, right? And yeah. so I think that's yeah. really important. Yeah. I think, Colin, for you, I'm sure you saw something in Gavin and you saw something in a lot of your teachers, as Gavin, as you did when you were um, working in your schools, you saw things in your teachers and it wasn't just haphazard. For me, I saw something in every one of my teachers that when I was an administrator, I wanted to make sure that they felt, as you said, Gavin, they felt seen. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the key, uh, that you feel seen and you feel heard. And yeah. it's not just rhetoric or words. It's it's a genuine attempt. I mean, that's part of the cognitive coaching work I do. I think I'm still so drawn to that because it gives people a way of, of being that for other people. You know, you help people to be seen and heard when you when you stay present and truly listen to their stories and who they are and you make less assumptions about who they are, exactly. uh, maybe less judgments and therefore you can grow them um, and support them and develop them, you know, in, in the way they need to be as part of an organization, but of course sure. with autonomy as well, you know, that, that kind of the balance between those two things. So it's, it's interesting that we all talk about where it's come from for each of us, but how that to some degree doesn't leave you. It just kind of shifts gears or, yeah. you know, sure. changes vehicles if you like. And, and when you talk about what you just talked about, Gavin, it's all about relationships, Colin, right? It's about that building yeah, of trust okay. because when when I am an administrator and I have you know staff, I want to pump them up. I want to give them positives, but there are times where we have to have hard conversations. So if I've had this relationship, this positive relationship with them, then when I have to have a maybe a difficult conversation that's still a kind conversation, but it may be a difficult conversation, um, they are more apt to hear me. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. I think that that is the point. It's it's the fact that you're they know your disposition is looking for the good. They know you're actually trying to help them, not hinder them in their career. So when you have to have those more difficult conversations, if you've built up this basis of them understanding that we're all in this together, we're working together here, they're more likely to listen to the advice or the you know, whatever the, the topic of the conversation needs to be in terms of progressing their career. Because most of those conversations, when we have those difficult conversations, is to help them. It's not to hinder them. It's yeah. to actually help them progress them and to make them better teachers um, in terms of achieving what they want to achieve, in, in achieving the purpose that they went into education in the first place for. Yeah. You know, when I, um, you know, talk about my career, and I think, you know, this is where maybe we come together, uh, you all talked about, um, and, and get, Colin, you talked a little bit about it in terms of working in isolation. Um, in your former school, teachers were working extremely, you know, really hard and cared deeply about kids. And, and so for the first 15 years of my career, I was in a school system, which was a very good school system. Um, and I worked in a number of schools that, you know, the teachers worked extremely hard. They cared deeply about children. They, they did the best they could. But there were still students who were not making it because we weren't working in this collaborative way in terms of the PLC at work model. And yeah. so after 15 years, I moved districts and then I went to a school that was like, oh, a light bulb came on. I'm like, this is just makes sense to me. And I met Rick and Becky DeFore that year because they came in to our district to start um, doing some work. And that's when truly my professional life changed. So can you talk a little bit about um, the time that you really were introduced to the PLC at work model and how Rick and Becky DeFore and maybe Bob Aker really have helped you 
um, broaden that idea of of all means all? Do you want to start, Gabe? Yeah, I think for that one, yeah, I can I can start because it goes back to two thousand and nine. I mean, for me, it started with a book. So Elaine Brownlow, and who was my publisher, Elaine Brownlow was the you know, she started Hawker Brownlow Education, which in Australia is the biggest um, uh, educational publisher uh, this part of the world. And, and I, she had published the, I had the honor of meeting book. Elaine. Hmm. I had the yeah, honor of meeting you, Elaine yeah, when was, they came with yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Elaine. And look, she gave me a book, Brian. I was a, I'd published one book with her, with a colleague that I taught with actually at Somerville Rise, where um, Colin was speaking about before. And so we had a relationship based on this first book that, that she again saw a need for. And I, we were like, oh, she said, oh, we need to write this book. And we're like, oh, now we've got to write a book. We didn't, we just, we thought it was a good idea. And we met her and um, gave it to her and she said, no, this needs to be said. So a little book about really student agency um, introduced me to a whole other world. Now, long story short, she gave me learning by doing one day and said, I think you should read this because I was already working with a network of schools to support them in the strengthening of their, their teaching and learning really. And so I read learning by doing and cutting an even longer story short, I was taken by it. It was one of those educational books I read in a night. You know, I was up till yeah. six o'clock. I don't think I got sleep, sleep that night because it was like, well, we, this is just, we should just all be doing this. I mean, right. I think Rick and Bob, particularly in those early days, and then Becky and and Mike, and then as it sort of increased, I think what they did was put on the map that collaborative schools are a, a non, they're just an essential, right? And so for, for back then it was kind of, we thought we were working collaboratively and we weren't. So I read this book, ended up at the ASCD conference in America presenting with a colleague from America on cognitive coaching mm -hmm. and just happened um, Elaine Brownlow was there to get the opportunity to meet with um, basically Rick and Becky. Right. And from that, um, from that situation on, I, I just ended up in conversations and said to actually Rick um, and Jeff Jones, who's the head of Solution Tree at the time, right. I want to do this work in Australia. We need to be doing this. Um, and I'm sure they thought, well, yes, who are you and why do you want to do this? They probably Googled me and thought, who is this guy who just walked off the street? Uh, and, I, and, and, and it was Rick who basically said, well, okay, yes, but you need to be doing the work with us and in schools with schools over right. a, a short period, not, not a short period of time, a long period of time. Uh, and so we started with five schools in Melbourne, four schools in Canberra, and actually four schools in Adelaide here in, in Australia. And I worked with Rick and Becky directly. They were my mentors as right. I worked with those schools and those leadership teams to help them to re-culture and structure as professional learning communities through the PLC at work process. And that was over a, really a three or four year period uh, where I, and Colin's school was one of those schools yeah. um, that I, that I worked with. And that, and that was my introduction and that became, and Rick and Becky came to Australia and we ran events here to support schools to get to know their work a little bit better. Um, and, you know, that's a very long story short. I've tried to no, keep it short, not, but that's well, kind of where, you know, that's where it started for, for me. Yeah. Um, and it was me that then gave Colin the book. Uh, he'll probably tell the story learning by doing and said, hey, you need to read this. Um, yeah, that's that was my, my introduction to... To, so I didn't work as directly with Bob Eker, but of course I right. and understood and appreciated um, the history of their work together and how kind of all of this evolved over time. And one of the quiet people in that that movement, and I, I call him um, 
the the Ringo star of the movement is Tom Maney because Tom was really influential in a lot of that work as well. I and mean, he's he's a, one of the co-authors of Learning by Doing. And and you two are being modest because the the Australian version of Learning by Doing, you two have contributed to the writing of that, right? Yep, yep, most definitely. And that was um. I think in response in terms of knowing that our education system was a little bit different from America, while the tenants yeah. and the underlying principles are exactly the same and you can't fault the uh, the philosophy behind the text, just in terms of language, making sure the language was uh, conducive to the Australian education scene. Gavin mentioned before where I came into the uh, the learning by doing journey with him, and it was it when I opened my last school, which was um, Packham Springs, and that was in that 2008, 2009 period. And Gavin was right, I remember... I was absolutely emerged in trying to get a new school off the ground. This was my involvement was um, working with the uh, the architects of the school, the the builders of the school. It was on that level. So for the year before the school opened, I was the principal of my previous school, but also the acting principal of a new school yet to open. So my head was in a whole range of different spaces thinking, okay, you know, I've got to continue to manage and, and run and lead my, my current school, right. but also keeping an eye on what I was going to do different, knowing that there were certain things that I was going to do different in terms right. of my new school. And it was at that period, as Gavin said, um, I can remember going around to his place and he pointed to a pile of books on the floor in his study. And there's a whole stack of books that had come, I think, from um, Solution Tree in terms of the uh, the learning by doing uh, text and the kit that they had sent out. And he pointed to that book and said, you know, here's a book, you should take this, you need to read this. And you can imagine in my mind, I have a million things I'm trying to do here to juggle between two schools. I do not have time to read another book about education at the moment, no matter how good this book is. And I can tell you at that point, he was certainly raving about the book. Well, I did take it and put it on the desk and left it there for a while, but I kind of picked it up and started doing it. It was a bit like Gavin's experience. Once I started to read it, it was only like, within the first chapter, it had connected to me and it was summarising exactly what was going through my head in terms of how I needed to structure and set up my new school differently from yeah. the school I, I was leaving. It was, for me, that next step in my leadership journey in terms of going, hang on, this is doing exactly what I want to do. It's saying to me, I need to be the learning leader of my school, yeah. not just the leader of my school in terms of the admin and making things right. sure everything's organized. I could do that with my ha hands tied up, you know, yeah. 15, 20 years of being a principal. That was not a, a challenge to me at all. But getting that now, my focus back on, you are the leader of learning in this school. How does this that make this school fundamentally different from the school you're leaving? And that's where kind of I connected with that. Then obviously joined in, as Gavin said, he set up a, a network of schools who were going through a similar process. And that gave me great feedback. And, and my leadership team, who would come along to those uh, uh, forums and, and discuss the practicalities of implementing this, not the theory behind it, but how do you actually get to do this in schools? And that kind of moved us along the journey. Those are great stories. One of the things that I um, knew early on when I very similar to you all when I started to read the books and and I was connected to Rick and since 2005 um, and Becky one of the things that that I found not so much with the school that I was we were you know leading um, but other schools that weren't getting traction 
Um, mm -hmm. And I think sometimes it was because they were afraid to let go of some of the traditional thinking and traditional ways of doing. Did you experience any of that in terms of your teachers or any of the other schools in Australia? Were some schools um, able to take hold of it really quickly and move forward? Or did you just feel like the, the schools that you were working with, people were just hungry for it and they were ready to move forward? Uh from the broader perspective of working across all of those schools, I would say absolutely. Like we had wins and we had we had losses. Like, yeah. and we had, and it was such a learning curve. And that's why Rick, I think, said you must work in schools with these schools alongside of them, to, because that's where the learning takes place. And I could take that learning into other schools, into other systems, and support them in in their thinking about this, because right. there's. Yeah, I was constantly um, searching for why is this working here and not working here? And what are some of the reasons? And then, of course, you're looking at structures, you're looking at leadership, you're looking at more of the dispositional aspects to the way in which people are working. And um, I think it was, I really do believe, you know, for example, cognitive coaching is a bit of a grease that makes the PLC wheel turn because it, sure. it helps people understand how and who we need to be together when we're working together. Plus a whole, I mean, that's just one aspect of my work so many other aspects of work um, that is out there that is phenomenal in supporting people to not just understand what the work is but know how who they need to be as they're as they're doing the work and then you've got you know those who can be great storytellers as leaders who bring everybody on and understand the mission vision values and goals and make people part of that and others who that's not so much a strength and so that was a you know difficulty so there was those leadership aspects i mean so many aspects to this work that it really demands from us and asks of us as educators, that is challenging. It's definitely challenging work and it's designed to disrupt the status quo of the school, right? So, you know, if if that's what it's designed to do, we learn a lot about ourselves as we're doing it um, or not doing it. If we're not disrupting this, you know, sometimes there wasn't much change or shift, but, um, you know, they were, schools would refer them to themselves as PLCs and you, you didn't see much evidence it was any different to the year before. So. So absolutely, yes. But I think my point is that, that that was a catalyst for not only my learning, but the learning other schools could have, you know, from one another as we grappled with those challenges um, together. And I think it's as true then as it is today, uh, not just for the PLC process, but for so much of, you know, what we're trying to, who we're trying to be in, in education um, at the moment. I think I can build on that, um, Brian, as well, because... In the Victorian education experience, obviously, the, the, the Department of Education here wants to improve education. Sure. So they roll out, and I'm not sure if it's the same in America, but they here in um, Australia, they roll out initiatives. So we'll have something come in, a new initiative will come in, and it will it will be there for, you know, three, four, five years. Then the next thing will wave coming yep. over it. Then the next thing will wave over it. Like the pendulum. Yeah, exactly right. And it was kind of, and it did, I could see it. And, you know, and I know Rick and um, they talk about it in the book and in their presentations, they would talk about, you know, that fatigue you get from that. And here's another thing coming through and we'll just sit back and wait for it to pass. And another one will come through. I think in that group of, of schools that I worked with, with um, led by Gavin, the difference of schools who got it or didn't get it was schools that conceived that it wasn't an extra. Yeah. If they understood, as Gavin said, this is to disrupt the way we do things. If you were willing to go along and say, 
we're not throwing out everything. We're molding everything around this, these key ideas. This yeah. is not an add-on. This is what we should be doing in the first place. The way we we still adopted that and yeah. said, okay, this is what we need to do. Yeah. I, I still hear it today when I go out in schools, you know, um, schools will talk about their PLC time. And I go, what are you talking about? It's all PLC time. PLC, Everything yeah. we do from, you know, every meeting down from leadership down to collaborative team meetings is around progressing the learning of our students. It's not an extra. We don't come and do something extra here and then right. go back into our real work. So that's what I think I saw as a difference in terms of um, schools that um, move forward with it were those schools that were willing to be self-reflective, to let go of things or to mould things that they were currently doing into moving it closer to those principles of, you know, the, the PLC or work model. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I um, felt that um, really just gave me this great tool um, was this brilliant person, Anthony Muhammad. And he started this, uh, this idea you know, or this, support of schools and in, in talking about really talking about culture and, and talking about how we in his book transforming school culture he really laid it out on these four ways that we can move schools forward and one of the things i like about anthony's work is that he doesn't demonize people he talks about you know unhealthy versus healthy cultures or he says productive versus unproductive organizational health and so when he, you know, goes at it from that point of view, I really think it takes the defensive defensiveness off and just helps people understand that, you know, if, if we're going to move forward, we're going we're gonna to help people understand why we're moving in this direction. If we don't tell people why, mm -hmm. as you all said, this is just another initiative. And so we have to help people understand we're going to build shared knowledge around the why and then we're going to build trustful relationships and disperse relationships so it's not about one person. And then, Gavin, as you talked about, that cognitive cognitive, cognitive coaching, try to say that three times fast, there's a lot of how <laughs> in this, right? There's a lot of, okay, I don't know how to do this. I'm going to resist. So I need support. I need the proper time, training, tools, and support to be able to do what you're asking me to do. So all the things that you are talking about is that that idea of making sure that we're promoting a healthy school culture? Most definitely. I yeah, think I think culture is Brian, because if you don't see it as a cultural shift, if you if you're not working this from the the top, the leadership down, seeing this as a cultural shift in the way we basically do schooling, then it doesn't work. We've seen Gavin and I have seen countless examples where it's left to the poor team. It's, it becomes the work of the team without those supportive structures, that culture that needs to be, you know, all consuming within the school to support those teams to do the work. Without that support, we have seen, literally seen teams, you know, die what we could describe as this horrible, painful death where they're trying to do the right thing. They're wanting to do it. There's yeah. not the support, that cultural understanding of what this looks like in a school context. Exactly, exactly. And then they say, well, this PLC thing doesn't work. And it's not that it doesn't work, it's that we have not implemented it in, in the way that allows it to take hold. Exactly. I think as a learner, you know, as in my, as my own learning has evolved, as my frame frames of reference have broadened, and I've been able to learn so much more just about, you know, about many things in our profession. Yeah. I think I've, and it goes back to what you said about Anthony, I've 
learned how to be sort of vigilant in a really respectful way at challenging people to think about that because the facts are there are many bodies of work many different bodies many pieces of research sort of authors who do sort of refer to and think about plcs and collaborative teams as the team not the school right. and i think the the the, the really the the difference in the PLC at work process that we've kind of emphasized in this um, in this chat is that the PLC is the whole school, whereas for many other you know bodies of work, there's less of that emphasis on culture, which Anthony is certainly um, you know amplified and, and made really accessible for many people. Yeah. But in many other bodies of work, you don't see that. And so, I mean, there's a genuine confusion, which which I think exists for many educators and schools, as Colin talked about, too, with system priorities and initiatives. And that's not, that's not um, well, that's something else you've got to try and work through and work with when you're helping schools and teams, um, you know, do the work. And I'm sure that that would be the same in the US. Oh, it's, it definitely is the same. And I think that's why a lot of schools spin their wheels, because the, because of what you said, Colin, initiative fatigue, and there are so many different things coming at us, they think PLC is a thing. And so they're like, oh, we don't have enough time to deeply understand it, but let's let's actually PLC light it and think of it as a team or a meeting. And then they just miss the boat because what happens is when you, you um, to know, when we're trying to answer those critical questions, especially critical question number one, you know, identifying those essential standards, making sure we have a guaranteed and viable curriculum. Part of that for me in my work is to make sure that those teams are talking vertically, right? And so yes. that connects the rest of the school. And so um, I think people have to understand that if I identify an essential skill, then I want to know at the grade above and the grade below, <laughs> are we actually in, in alignment, right? And so that's part of that yeah. misunderstanding where the the... The good part is that some people are working as teams. The miss boat is that team is working in isolation. Yes, yes, we agree. So, so yeah, totally. let's let's actually because we only have a few minutes left. I, I want to make sure that we touch on your books. Um, there, there. Um, I, I looked at your your website, Gavin, and you have a ton of stuff happening. Um, you have you know a number of programs that are that are going on. Can you talk a little bit about your collaborative teams that work, any of your workshops that you're you're doing together, uh, any books that are coming out that uh, we should pay attention to? Well, I think uh, it's funny, I was just thinking about collaborative teams that work, the book Colin and I wrote, it was really the culmination of doing this work for over 10 years where we saw what, what was needed, which was teams were also saying, yeah, well, we're in, we're all in, we understand this and we want to do it, but we're not sure how <laughs> we don't really know how to operationalize these um this way of thinking and this way of working and right down to what tasks do we actually engage in into these tasks fit what this process demands uh and then we also found as we tried to implement this that there were other challenges in doing this work that maybe weren't being addressed in other in other in other literature or in other book um, schools of thought so that's that's where collaborative teams at work came about and that's we run a leadership retreats on that here in australia and we support schools in helping teams to do that to do that work as we take them through really the key actions and tasks that collaborative teams need to engage in to make a bigger difference to each other uh, and the students they serve in their teams Colin, this have i got that right yeah, i hope so exactly right yeah, certainly because it was if 
it wasn't a book we wrote to write a book. It was a genuine re response to what we were both Who seeing. Who does that? <laughs> Who would want to do that? <laughs> when we go out into schools and we're going out into schools and we're going to different schools, but when we're coming back and catching up in the office and talking, we're talking about the same stuff. We're talking about, yeah. but why aren't they getting it? Why, why are they doing that at their meeting? We're in the, in the research or, you know, um, learning by doctors that say they should be sitting down doing that. Why are they doing that? Why are they misinterpreting that? So I suppose we wrote the um, the book in terms of being a roadmap, and we certainly refer to it as a roadmap in terms of this key things that we think um, collaborative teams should be doing if they're progressing this work, if they are really focusing on improving, you know, learning outcomes and trying to achieve the um, highest learning outcomes they can for all students, then there's certain tasks they have to do. And in the book, we've obviously tried to outline those tasks so that there's at least an understanding of this is where we're heading. We might not do all those things and some of those might not be relevant to our school context or situation, but at least we know what we're trying to do. And then we can go, hey, this is applicable. These, these actions, these are the ones that are applicable to our collaborative teams in our situation. You make it manageable. I, I mean, I was fortunate enough that to, to read your book, and and one of the things that you do is you make it manageable and practical. And you also like right up the it, at the beginning, you talk about, you know, those four critical questions. They're not meant to be addressed all in one meeting. Sometimes yeah, yeah. I think they're supposed to be addressed all in one meeting, and they're just frustrated. They're like, "How can we do this? We don't have the time." I think Brian, basically, if we we summarize what Gavin and I have come to realize is that. Basically, when collaborative teams come together, there's a misunderstanding of what they should be doing. They think they should be doing tasks together. Yeah. We strongly advocate in that book that the, what they should be doing is implementing a collaborative process. Yeah. Yes, they're doing tasks together, but those separate tasks or action build up into a bigger process that yeah. allows them to monitor the impact of their teaching. Yeah. And so, yes, there are two more books. Thanks for the free plug, Brian. Uh, it's coming out. Uh, so we've got a book, uh, Mastering Meetings That Matter, coming out. I think it comes out in two weeks. Uh, that's very much about just the mechanics of how you operationalise an agenda. We've, yeah. we've worked with meetings where there are no, there's not even an agenda. Yeah. What, what do you have to actually do? So that's one piece, very, very practical, um, like a little companion for people to have as they're thinking about the construction of their meetings. And I've um, yeah, got a book coming out in three weeks, I think now, called Emerge, which is for middle leaders, to help them overcome the most common challenges associated with leading from the middle. I think they were generally referred to teacher leadership in the States. Um, but it's it, it's something I'm passionate about. It's like 15 years of my, my thinking, my learning, my work sort of into a book to help middle leaders um, overcome some of those common challenges like, you know, how to overcome the pleaser in you when you're, when you're leading friends that you're now sort of sitting above um, and maybe some imposter syndrome you might have or how do you have those difficult conversations that Colin spoke about before when I, I have no experience of it and um, potentially not being um, looked at in the way in which I, I feel like I, I should be in terms of my leadership identity and just a whole range of other pieces and it's it's just a book to help people's self-awareness what might what you need to become more aware of in yourself to help you to overcome some of those challenges with some some practical ways of applying it and and that you know, I guess the main message of that book is we're all works in progress. It's the most personal book I've ever written. I make myself pretty vulnerable in it and talk about how I'm still finding my own way in this space and uh, hope that it's a, a bit of a going back to where we started, a mentoring, like an old head on young shoulders kind of book for people who are grappling with some of the things that um, that I was grappling with and, you know, continue to do in, in many, many walks of life 
around our our leadership efforts. So that's so that's that one. Thanks for the for our platform and opportunity to talk <laughs> about it. Sure, sure. Well, this has been great, you two. I, I really appreciate it. One of the things that I wish I had more time, or I wish I actually was traveling more to Australia because I learned so much from you two. Uh, just just in this this forty five minutes, it's it's really just um, an honor to be able to to speak with both of you. At the end of each one of my my um, podcast, I say this proverb. It's an old African proverb. I used it at my dad's funeral uh, a few years ago. My wife actually introduced it to me probably about 15 years ago. And the proverb says, as I go, I am wearing you. And what it means is I'm not Brian Butler. I am a compilation of all the people who have helped me along the way. Um, and, and so those people, when you see Brian Butler, you see the people when I was younger, the, the, the people who helped me um, as a, a, a young adult, the people who are still are helping me, those are the people who I am wearing and I'm representing in, in, in all that I do. Um, and so as I go now, I continue to add people to my journey and you two are two of those people, Colin and Gavin. So as I go now, I am wearing Colin and Gavin. Thank you, Brian. Wow, that's right. lovely. That is that is a privilege to hear that, and um, it was an absolute privilege to be asked and have the opportunity just to to chat about this. And we can't wait to have you back in Australia. We will definitely take you to the Australian that's Open in January. That's my dream. The Australian Open. Well, we hope that well, dream towards it. Yep. Well, yes. thank you too thank so you. much. I appreciate and that. I appreciate you all coming on a conversation with Brian, and we'll talk to you very soon. Thanks so much. Thank Thanks, you. Brian. Subscribe to A Conversation with Brian on Spotify. Thank you.